Hey, it's Brian. Before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. If there are little ones within earshot, save this for later. Thanks. There's that scene about three quarters of the way through a movie, when the hero is down and out, truly dejected, deflated, no fight left in him. Whatever ups and downs had been along the road on the hero's journey, he or she had generally been able to manage. But then, along comes a truly major setback, one that does some real and lasting damage and seems insurmountable, and the hero is left reeling and ready to give up. This is where we find John Gluck in 1922. Whatever good he may have set out to do with getting children's letters to Santa Claus answered, whatever contribution to the magic of Christmas he set out to make, it's clear by now that there was something more to it for him. It's like J.P. Morgan said, a person has two reasons for doing anything, a good reason and the real reason. And John Gluck's real reason was very likely to make a name for himself, to be a somebody, to become rich and famous. And it was all working for a while, accolades in the press, wealthy and powerful people in his orbit, being half of what nowadays we'd call a power couple. And along the way, though we can't say for sure, but we can be reasonably certain, he was padding his own bank account. But when we last saw him, he had seen a setback in a nearly literal sense. Set back to where he was at the start of it all. Divorced, working a workaday job, out of the public eye, His work with the United States Boy Scout was over because the United States Boy Scout itself was over. Much of what he'd created with the Santa Claus Association was merely limping along. And he'd been through an ordeal with investigations and a raid on his apartment. And in what you might call a cruel reminder, depending on what you think of Gluck, many of those children's letters to Santa Claus wound up getting delivered to Gluck's own home address during his time away from the Santa Claus Association. But that down-and-out moment in a movie, that dark night of the soul as the screenwriters call it, that's usually followed by a moment of clarity, where the hero is given renewed focus and energy to mount one final push to carry the story to its final conclusion. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past, and it's time to see the story of John Gluck and the Santa Claus Association to its conclusion. But there's plenty more story to tell before we get there. And as you've come to expect from John Gluck so far, this final chapter includes movie stars, an American president, some glitzy jazz age society parties, and a playboy mayor. And no surprise, Gluck's gonna Gluck. He'll push his truth stretching to the limit, and this time he'll finally cross the wrong person and find himself in a cat and mouse game with the one guy who figures out the stunningly simple way to end Gluck's antics once and for all. What began as a source of good and hope and belief in Santa Claus and the spirit of Christmas and charity ended as a footnote in Christmas history and a lament on what might have been. This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper. A special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. Chapter 6. A Comeback and a Takedown. In 1919, Gluck left it all behind. For the most part, he officially handed things over to a retired businessman named Samuel Brill. It 
it helped to sort of build the group back up during the early 20s where Gluck had sort of given up on it. Brill was determined to kind of keep it going. He really thought this was a great idea. That's Alex Palmer, the New York Times bestselling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. He invested a lot of effort into helping raise the attention for the group. He would write op-eds for the New York Times about the work that they were doing. And Brill believed in what the Santa Claus Association was doing, but he may have had other motives for agreeing to take up the helm. This was still a time when there was pushback about the expenditures that were being laid out for Christmas gifts. So he had actually spoken against what he called Black Christmas. So Brill was urging people to spend their money on Christmas. The Santa Claus Association was in some ways an extension of this kind of publicity push, a way to keep people celebrating Christmas, having positive emotions towards it, wanting to spend money on it. But all along, Gluck was watching from afar, pulling a couple strings here and there, trying to stay involved, stay relevant, but also keeping a low profile and letting Brill restore the Santa Claus Association to some of its earlier prestige. But in 1922, that all changes. Gluck was ready to get back into the action. Whatever time away he needed from the Santa Claus Association, and for whatever reasons, that time had come to an end. His hiatus was over, and he started working his Rolodex to secure new office space for the 1922 season. He was able to score space in the esteemed Knickerbocker building. And if this was going to be the big comeback it was supposed to be, the season was going to have to start off with a bang. Thanks to the power of Santa Claus and sort of hiding behind this figure, he was able to line up maybe some of the most impressive endorsers that he'd ever gotten. He secured Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford to launch from their suite in the Ritz-Carlton the 1922 season. It's hard to overstate what a huge deal this was. Yeah, getting Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks to put their imprimatur on your charity and to draw publicity for your event is akin to getting Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie when they were still a couple. That's Alonzo Duralde. He's the film reviews editor at The Wrap, as well as a podcaster and the author of the book Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. Uh, in a way, they were kind of the architect of early Hollywood. They were both huge movie stars. He was a swashbuckler. She was arguably the, one of the first actresses you could call America's sweetheart. She really sort of first kind of nailed down the notion of the on-screen ingenue. And yeah, they were pretty much the original Brangelina even down to having their own portmanteau. Their mansion was named Pickfair. This was a big, big win for Gluck. The Santa Claus Association was back. And for the next season, 1923, Gluck received an even bigger endorsement. After trying and failing during the war years to get noticed by President Wilson by trying to propose a Christmas truce or volunteering as a citizen spy of sorts, this time his fortunes changed. Calvin Coolidge became president that year, and Coolidge, along with his Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, approached Gluck to wish the country's children a Merry Christmas via telegraph. Here's Alex Palmer again. At the time, uh, Coolidge and Hoover promoted this idea of, of associationalism in the government, which was basically outsourcing a lot of charitable efforts and welfare efforts to private organizations. And just like the early days of the Santa Claus Association, when New York City was transforming with skyscrapers and it seemed like anything was possible, some of that old magic was back. The war was over, and soon America found itself in the Roaring Twenties, a time of unprecedented prosperity. And in a familiar refrain to Gluck, that sounded like an opportunity. 
So the Santa Claus Association started hosting glitzy benefit events, like the New Year's Eve party they hosted in 1923 at the Waldorf. They were able to host this massive party on New Year's of 1923, what was called a New Year's Land fundraising party. They had uh, uh, Jack Dempsey, who a couple months earlier had one of the most famous boxing matches. So people were still turning out for the Santa Claus Association. It was still managing to raise a lot of money. And Gluck was also ready to get back into doing some publicity work on the side, including a job he did for a charity drive for the Samaritan Hospital, which ultimately turned out to be a really bad move. Because, of course, Gluck just couldn't help himself with his deceptions. In fact, this would be the moment that we can well and truly pinpoint as the beginning of the end. Part of the charity drive was tapping the employees of the hospital, including a lot of their nurses. In his publicity side, published a photo with just a group of these nurses and played up to the papers that these were a group of society women that were planning to have this social tea and really emphasize that these were creme de la creme of society. And it seems like a kind of an innocuous thing, but it really irritated the director of the campaign, who then wrote to the papers saying that this was not the case, that these were nurses and that they're just as good as any society girl, but it's just inaccurate to refer to them as that. And he promptly fired Gluck. It was kind of a funny thing for such a social climber, misrepresenting the class level of a group of fundraisers, acting like they were uh, higher on the social ladder than they were. But getting fired wasn't the worst of it. Far from it. The whole thing became a public fiasco. It made headlines, and those headlines caught the eye of an organization called the Brooklyn and Queens Charity Investigation Bureau, which in turn asked the city's public welfare commissioner to investigate. And that commissioner would turn out to be the ultimate foil to Gluck's exaggerations and sneaky tactics and showmanship. Because this was the tough, sober, no-nonsense Bird Sim Kohler. Jeez, his name even sounds straight-laced. He was like the Joe Friday of public welfare commissioners. In a lot of ways, he was the mirror opposite of Gluck. He was somebody that was not uh, a BSer. He was happy to push back against anybody who he saw as, as disagreeing with him, cutting out the emotional side to really get to the facts of the case. This was a guy who spent his career in government. He was even the Democratic Party's nominee for governor of New York in 1902. And when he became the city's public welfare commissioner in 1918, he immediately cracked down on those who collected money for soldiers or hosted charity fundraiser parties. Nobody was safe from Kohler. He brought scrutiny to the way money was being raised and being spent in the city, introduced efforts like requiring licensing for street solicitors, started cracking down on these benefit parties and charity programs that were just trying to raise money where it was hard to tell where it was actually going to. Didn't make a lot of friends during that time. He was very unsentimental. He was not a big uh, celebrator of the holidays or someone that would have bought into the same kind of stories that Gluck was telling. So when Kohler first became aware of Gluck, he saw right through all the marketing spin and appeals to people's emotions and good natures. Kohler had become convinced that this Santa Claus Association was not legitimate, was taking advantage of people's generosity, and the likely recipient of that generosity was Gluck and not the children that it claimed to be helping. And that's when Kohler vowed that the next Christmas season 
John Gluck and the Santa Claus Association were at the top of his to-do list. But there was a wrinkle in that plan. Kohler reported directly to the mayor of New York City, and that mayor was Jimmy Walker, who happened to be a big fan of the Santa Claus Association. He even presented Gluck with a key to the city at one point. They had some similarities. Walker was a bon vivant kind of character. He was an amateur songwriter, he was well known for his many affairs with chorus girls, and he didn't try too hard to stop the speakeasies that were cropping up in the city during Prohibition. Eventually, Walker was forced to resign in a corruption scandal. But during his time in office, not only was it true that Walker liked Gluck, it was also true that he did not like Kohler. The two men had a falling out over a bitter dispute regarding hospital improvement spending. But Kohler had a job to do. And when Gluck first heard about Kohler's intentions, he went on the offensive. And he did what he did best. He went to the papers. He tried to get an op-ed published, taking his case to the public. But his clout with the media wasn't what it used to be. The op-ed wasn't published. At least for the time being, it didn't matter either way. Just as with all the investigators who came before him, Kohler's hands were tied. Unless or until he had any actual evidence of wrongdoing, he couldn't even launch a formal investigation. But Kohler got what he needed in 1927. And it was Gluck himself who handed it to him on a platter. Because for the previous 14 years, the Santa Claus Association had been pretty much untouchable by charity watchdog groups because it wasn't a charity. Until... His whole pitch from the beginning had been that they don't need any money. But that changed in 1927 when he started sending out letters to his this massive list he'd, he'd accumulated over time saying, can you donate $100 to the Santa Claus Association? There were so many of these questionable solicitors that it was hard to catch the attention of Kohler when he was trying to play whack-a-mole with all of these dubious charities. But the sort of explicit request for funds was enough to raise questions from Kohler. So Kohler called Gluck into his office. And when Gluck got there, he refused to answer any questions or provide any documents. He claimed he was too busy with the Christmas season to deal with any of this. Gluck couldn't get the media attention he wanted with his op-ed, but this meeting was covered in the papers. There's a photo published in the New York Daily News of Gluck walking out of Kohler's office. The headline reads, Charity Head Defiant, Santa Claus Closes Accounts to Prober. Kohler wasn't buying Gluck's story that he couldn't cooperate because he was too busy. So the next day, he sent an auditor to the Knickerbocker building where the Santa Claus Association was operating, and it didn't look too busy to him. The auditor came to the office, but despite Gluck's talking up how many volunteers were there and how it sort of had come roaring back to its previous success, the auditor found just five volunteers at the office plus Gluck. Nonetheless, for this 1927 season, Gluck was able to push off the auditor and promise to provide full information once the season was wrapped. And he did. Sort of. In typical Gluck fashion, he put together, or had his accountant put together, this statement of the earnings and expenses of the group and provided that to both the press and Kohler. Which is not how you do something like that. Not in general, and definitely not when you're dealing with a man like Kohler. But Gluck's strategy was obvious. Get his side of the story out there and get the public on his side and position himself as the little guy getting picked on by City Hall when all he was trying to do was spread some Christmas cheer. And that just irritated Kohler. 
he had wanted to audit the books himself and to actually find this information themselves. What Gluck provided was kind of a limited picture of the actual funding, but even the limited picture that he provided to Kohler raised plenty of questions. There were things like rent costs of a few thousand dollars, even though the Knickerbocker had been donated. There was a $10,000 fund that had been in the books from one year to the next, the savings for expenditures when needed. It just disappeared one year and never came back. It almost raised more questions than it answered. And still, despite all of this, the easily verifiable lies, the obviously inflated numbers, the incomplete bookkeeping, the clear transition from not being a charity to looking a heck of a lot like a charity, Kohler just didn't have a lot of options. Only if he could present an open and shut case of brazen fraud did he have any chance of prosecuting. If he was going to take down Gluck, he'd have to play the game at Gluck's level. He'd have to come up with a clever strategy. And at last he did. Kohler figured out what no one else before him had been able to. And in this case, it's kind of hard to believe that it took 15 years for anyone to think of this. Because Kohler's solution was so simple and elegant in its simplicity. The Santa Claus Association existed to help get children's letters to Santa Claus answered. If you wanted to shut it down, you didn't need to prosecute. You just needed to take away the letters. He did have the idea to then reach out to the post office. They're the ones giving him legitimacy by giving him Santa's mail. He still remained the exclusive recipient of Santa's mail. So maybe by removing that piece of it, that would be enough to combat the Santa Claus Association and undercut all these efforts that Gluck was doing. It wasn't an investigation by the state attorney general or a high-profile lawsuit or a raid on his apartment or accusations of mail fraud or blackmail or spying for the enemy that would finally put an end to it. It wasn't a reshuffling and a reshaping of the group or a devastating divorce or any of that. For nearly 15 years, Gluck and the Santa Claus Association had evaded any kind of scrutiny by controlling the narrative and massaging the facts and operating just barely on this side of the law. There's a poetic irony, and certainly a poetic symmetry, in the fact that it would be the mail itself that closed the book on Gluck. So Kohler coordinated with the post office. They made a change in the official postal policy at that point and said that they would not be giving the letters to the Santa Claus Association. So this was actually at the beginning of December when this policy came out to Gluck's surprise. So he'd already received some of the, the letters to Santa's. It was literally the postal inspector actually, you know, coming to his office and removing the letters. So it was almost this flipped version of Miracle on 34th Street. And just like that, it was over. Over for Gluck and over for every child behind one of those letters that was taken back. Every child who had yet to write one. Every child in New York wanted to have this new and enchanting experience of writing a letter to Santa Claus and putting it in the mail and through some bit of Christmas magic receiving a reply and a gift. Because now all of those letters would be going back to the dead letter office. It might have been different if some other charities had stepped forward to fill the void, but none of them did. Not a single one. It was all over. What began in 1913 with thousands of children's letters delivered to the association ended in 1928 with only one letter. A letter from the post office reading simply, no mail. Was John Gluck just someone who started out with good intentions, only to get carried away with the money and attention? 
Or was he a con artist who planned all along to tap into people's Christmas spirit and charitable natures for his own ends? Was he a criminal? Or merely someone who inadvertently committed some criminal acts? Or thought that some rule-bending was acceptable if it served the greater good? Or was he messy? A mix of incompatible values and impulses, just like the rest of us. He's quite a character, certainly a bit of a narcissist, a bit of a deceiver, and um, maybe a criminal even. But I don't know that he had exclusively selfish motives. And I think, in part, he did come into it with a desire to do something special for the city and for these kids riding to Santa. But the combination of the attention he received and his own selfish instincts that couldn't quite be overcome led to the group's undoing. But I don't think that he's a total villain. I think that there's both naughty and nice in him. You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. And if you can believe it, there's actually even more to this story, stuff that just didn't find its way into this telling. So I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy of The Santa Claus Man by Alex Palmer. It's available in print, ebook, and audio formats. This series was produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Dave Depper, Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Zabriskie, and Kevin McLeod. Thank you to everyone who appeared in this series, Katie and April in North Carolina, Alex Killian, Greg Young, Wesley Livesey, Javier Leva, Alonzo Duralde, and of course, Alex Palmer. You can find out more about everyone involved in this series and discover some bonus content over at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta. And in just a few days, we'll be back to the regular season episodes of Christmas Past, exploring the stories behind your favorite Christmas traditions and sharing your Christmas memories. We'll also be presenting a special episode recorded live at San Francisco's Great Dickens Christmas Fair. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. And hey, if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thanks. Thanks.